Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, well, we are dedicated to military history from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. If you like what you hear so far, if you're a regular listener, then pop over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to drop us a five-star review. It really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history. Now, as you know, each week we bring you two new original podcasts, but once a week I like to delve into the Dan Snow's History Hit Archive and pull out a podcast that needs some attention. This one is on the Battle of Britain. In June 1940, Nazi Germany overran France and forced the British Army to evacuate at Dunkirk. Severely lacking in military equipment, Britain and its empire now stood alone against Hitler's forces. But, as we know, to stand a chance of crossing the channel, Germany would have to crush the RAF. It had to gain control of the skies. This was the Battle of Britain, the first major battle to be decided entirely by air power. But what parts of this narrative have we got wrong? What parts have we got right? Well, to find out, Dan Snow spoke to historian Andy Saunders and Second World War veteran Wing Commander Thomas Neal. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Good to have you at last. Thanks for having me along. Now, you've got heretical views, dangerous and terrifying views about the Battle of Britain, haven't you? Well, and let's start with, was it a battle? <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, we all think we know what the Battle of Britain was. You know, it was fought during the summer and autumn of 1940. But really, it was a completely artificial British invention, if you, if you want to put it that way. Uh, Churchill first came up with the term, the Battle of Britain, when he addressed the House of Commons in, uh, in June 1940, and he said, the Battle of France is over. I expect the Battle of Britain is about to begin. So that was, you know, that was the Battle of Britain that is introduced to the British public and the world at large. But then, of course, when did it actually you know, really begin? Because the Germans had, had carried on, well, they'd started their air assault on Britain actually in October 39. So it was really, there was just a continuation. It, it increased in tempo, and once they got fighters up to the... Um, up to the French coast, obviously, it was, that was a game changer as well. But as far as the Germans were concerned, I mean, the Germans don't recognise, if you like, the, the Battle of Britain as such. It was just all part of the air campaign. So um, during, I think it was 1940, middle of 1941, 
the stationery office produce a little booklet on the Battle of Britain, and they set the dates of the start of the Battle of Britain as the 8th of August, 1940, to the 31st of October. Completely arbitrary dates, really, although having said that, there was some merit in choosing the 8th of August because it was a really hard-fought day. It was the hardest-fought day of the battle up until that point. So there was merit in the 8th of August. But then along comes Lord Dowding, the former chief or the Battle of Britain chief of RAF Fighter Command, and he is asked in... 1941, actually, he was asked to produce a dispatch for the London Gazette. That wasn't actually published until 1946. But in it, he says, well, I've been thinking about this. And actually, um, I don't think the Battle of Britain did start on the 8th of August. I think it started on the, the 10th of July. And he then gives his reasons for that. And he says, well, you know, it was the day when the, the big German air attack started, although he admits that there were previous heavy air attacks. And what's interesting is that there was a huge air attack on the 4th of July um, when Portland was really heavily bombed, HMS Foil Bank is sunk, Seaman Jack Mantle gets a Victoria Cross, posthumous Victoria Cross, about 165, I think, sailors are killed on on the Foil Bank, which ironically uh, was an anti-aircraft ship and, and gets sunk by Stukas. But RAF Fighter Command, through no fault of Fighter Command, were, were nowhere to be seen. They didn't get off the ground. They didn't intercept the raid. There was a failure in probably in, in, the, in the radar system in that the, the raid wasn't detected. So really, um, you could argue that quite strongly that the Battle of Britain started on the 4th of July. But of course, it would have been really embarrassing for Dowding to assume, well, I think it was the 4th of July, because the immediate question would be, well, where was Fighter Command? And of course, embarrassingly, they weren't there. So he sets these two dates, 10th of July to the 31st of October. 31st of October, again, is, is quite artificial. Certainly, the German air attacks were tailing off by that time, but they didn't stop. And there was heavy air activity on the 1st and carrying on into November, um, including daylight fighter activity. So you, you get this craziest situation where there was a chap who I interviewed many years ago, a chap called George Lott, who was a fighter pilot with 43 Squadron um, flying Hurricanes. And he actually gets shot down on the 9th of July. So the day before Dowding subsequently says the battle has started. He's blinded in one eye. He's out of the war effectively. And as he said to me, you know, nobody had told the bloody Germans that the Battle of Britain hadn't started yet. <laughs> so he was denied status as a Battle of Britain pilot. And then you get squadron leader Archie McKellar, who gets shot down and killed on the 1st of November. And although he was a Battle of Britain pilot, he was not a Battle of Britain casualty. A few days later, I think on the 6th of November, there's a chap called Sergeant Adair is shot down. Interestingly, you know, Sergeant Adair is actually alphabetically the very first name that you find on the Battle of Britain roll. He gets killed on the 6th of November. And again, he's not a Battle of Britain casualty. So, you know, I, I just find it interesting that everyone thinks, well, you know, we know when the Battle of Britain was, but actually it was just a complete, really a sort of invention in terms of dates. It did exist, didn't it? I mean, there was a concentrated attempt by the Germans to win air superiority, air supremacy over Southeast England, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, nobody would, would uh, doubt or, or question that. But it, it's this whole thing about when did it actually take place? And I just find it interesting that somebody arbitrarily came along, albeit, you know, somebody as revered as Lord Dowding, and says it happened between these dates. 
well, did it really? You know, it's it's just and of course on those dates also rest whether or not you qualified for the the Battle of Britain clasp to your ninety thirty nine forty five star. You know, so there was a huge amount of kudos that was attached to being a Battle of Britain pilot, understandably and quite rightly. But some poor guys were denied it at each end, you know. What else do we think we know about the Battle of Britain that isn't true? For example, let's go with the, you know, German, the Luftwaffe vastly outnumbered the RAF. Well, yes, uh, they did. But, you know, as I think it's in, in uh, famously in the Battle of Britain film, you know, uh, somebody says, well, they won't all come across at once. <laughs> um, but but yes, on, on frequent occasions, the RAF fighter command were, were hugely outnumbered. But, you know, numerically, um, if you look at a lot of the battles, um, yes, there, there were there was a huge disparity in, in the numbers involved. But you know, they did tend to come across, for the most part, in penny packets, and sometimes German bombers were coming across almost singly, you know, to, to carry out low-level attacks or whatever. They were better than us in all, almost every respect. The only problem they had, the Luftwaffe was not built in order to invade England. They were just built as to operate with the German army, which was perfectly good overland. It wasn't so good over the seas. So they had very short endurance periods. 39 litres would only give them about an hour and a half. So when they were in, even in northern France, attacking, escorting bombers as far away as uh, London, they would have to turn around and go back in about three-quarters way through their flight. And the red light would come on in their cockpit, which must have been very upsetting for them, because they'd be 100 miles away from base with the red light coming on. And they had their problems. And, of course, they were over enemy territory. If they conked out, or, and they had a lot of uh, problems with their aircraft, really, one way or another, they would fall into the channel before they got home. They lost a lot of people in the channel who never spoken of. So we shouldn't think of the RAF as it shouldn't. It's not necessarily a Dave and Goliath story. No, it wasn't always. No, um, you know, there's. I think there's a great deal of of mythology attached to it, and I'm certainly not, you know, attempting to be revisionist because I think it's just a, it's just important to look at it, you know, retrospectively and look at it objectively in terms of what really was going on. You know, very often, although obviously we had radar and the Observer Corps and, and everything else, and, and we could get fighters pretty much in the right place at the right time, uh, to get aircraft to altitude to actually have the height advantage, which was important. You know, on many, many occasions, if you look at the statistics, RAF Fighter Command didn't have the, the height advantage. They, they just couldn't get to altitude in, in time. Give us, another, give us another myth and, and help us un- understand what was actually going on. Well, I, I don't know if it's so much as a myth, but one of the other interesting things, actually, which is in Dowding's dispatch, uh, he talks about British pilots being machine gunned on their parachutes when they've bailed out over Britain. Certainly, there are instances where we know that did happen, whether it was accidental or whether it was deliberate or you know red mist on the part of the German pilots, I don't know. But the very interesting thing that Dowding says is that, you know, it might not have been sporting, it wasn't really cricket, but actually, the Germans were perfectly entitled to shoot a British defenceless British pilot on his parachute because this man was going to land on home territory and he'd be free to fight the next day. However, Dowding then goes on to say, actually, the other way around, you know, it was completely wrong. Uh, British pilots should not 
should not have shot at German pilots on, on their parachute. I don't think they, they did. And as Dowding acknowledges on both sides, there was, you know, if somebody bailed out, it was very often the case that the opponent would circle round and there'd be a cheery wave. But on you look at um, some of the combat reports of um, particularly some of the Polish squadrons, there's one fairly chilling uh, report that I read quite recently where the Polish pilot concerned shoots down an ME-109 and he actually says, I saw the pilot trying to get out of the cockpit. So I shot at the cockpit and I saw the pilot collapse back into the cockpit. And sure enough, you know, if we, we look at the, the records, we can identify who that pilot was and what was happening that day and certainly the pilot was killed so that was a deliberate act to you know to, to kill that pilot however you know this chap was was a pole they had completely different thinking towards the germans and, and i guess a lot of them you know wanted revenge so it was perhaps understandable but there are all these little you know little quirky things that come out particularly out of um out of dowding's dispatch which you know quite fascinating we had a war on our hands. Nobody knew anything about And uh, my training on the Spitfire was really nil. I could fly it. I could uh, climb through cloud when I had to and, uh, you know, keep up with my leader and not either lead in standing, flying past him or, or do things he didn't want me to do. But I was completely untouched. And there's one thing about it. I couldn't shoot to save myself. And I went up to Acklington with the rest of my squadron, which was our arm and practice camp. And something like 30,000 rounds against a toad drogue or a flag or whatever it was, I didn't hit the target with one bullet. How close did the RAF come to defeat in the summer of 1940? I, I think it, it certainly was quite a close-run thing. But really, you know, as we know, the Germans, um, the, the Luftwaffe, you know, kept changing their tactics. And had they actually understood, really, that, that attacking the radar stations... I think the, 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 the German perception was that attacking the radar stations was exceptionally difficult because they never saw any of the masts fall down, which they didn't. But what they didn't realise was that the, the radar stations that they did attack and put off the air, albeit temporarily, like Ventnor and Rye, I think, and, and possibly Dunkirk, which is Dunkirk near Canterbury, um, some of those radar stations were put off the air at least temporarily because the infrastructure was damaged, electric cables, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that, that, would have, that would have been a game changer because if they'd have just carried on, carried on attacking the radar stations, perhaps rather than the airfields even, then the RAF effectively would have been blind. And, and this, you know, that was a big part of the reason um, for failure, if you like, during the Battle of France, because the, the, the French Air Force, and, and we were flying with the French Air Force, had no command and control structure. So it was just a case of patrolling, flying up and down and hoping to find the Germans. Well, you know, that, that's, that was you know, a hopeless situation. So if, if we'd have been blinded in terms of the radar stations being knocked out, which would have been possible had the Germans kept at it, but they didn't really fully appreciate, you know, what damage they were doing or not doing, then that would have, been, that would have definitely been a, a big game changer. And we should tell people, because the radar information allows vitally important you know, pilots and hurricane spitfires to relax, stay on the ground, and then only actually get up in the air when they know there's a raid coming, rather than just patrolling around all day, using up fuel and energy. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. Absolutely right. 
But of course, the other thing about radar, which isn't generally understood, or radar then, was that it only looked outwards across the sea. So once the, the raiders had passed over the radar station, they were blind you know, in, in terms of what the radar could see. They could only see incoming raids. So once it had passed behind the radar station, it was then reliant upon the observer corps to continue plotting that, uh, that the course of, of the German aircraft. And of course, they might, the, the observer corps on some occasion lost them because of bad weather, the Germans changed course. And these are just lots of people on the ground making notes and, and ringing, up, ringing up somewhere like RAF Oxbridge with what they can see. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was on that information, the immediate information the sector controllers, well, in fact, cascading down from headquarters fighter command to to the group control and then down to sector stations, which were the smaller you know, cascading down stations. It was that immediate information that was coming in from the Observer Corps that was all important to get the fighters in the right place at the right time. Um, but it didn't always work. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a perfect system, but it was the world's first, you know, integrated air defence system and it it really it was it was amazing for what it was. Compare the Spitfire and Hurricane to the German fighter, the ME one oh nine. Oh, that's always a difficult one. I mean there were there were advantages, you know, and disadvantages with all aircraft, uh, with all those aircraft. You know, many people think, well the the Hurricane perhaps wasn't a match for the ME one oh nine, but in fact it could outturn the one oh nine. Um it, it was a, a match for the 109, and a lot of pilots preferred the, the Hurricane to the Spitfire. Um, it was certainly a, a much more sturdy aircraft in, in terms of the da- the damage that it could take because of its its structure. Obviously, the ME 109 had a had a, another advantage in that it had a fuel injection system as opposed to carburettors. So this meant it could you know it could go into a, a pretty steep dive almost immediately. That was a bit of a problem initially with the Spitfire and Hurricane. And in fact, with the ME-109 being able to go into such a steep dive immediately, when, when a pilot did that, goes into a steep dive in a 109, there was usually a, a plume of black smoke came from the exhaust. And that resulted in a lot of RAF pilots thinking they'd actually shot him down. But in fact, all he was doing was getting out of the way a bit smartish. So, um, yeah, uh, you, you know, I, I mean, it, it's horses for courses, Spitfires, Hurricanes, ME-109s. The, the other thing, of course, is that Hurricanes were sort of traditionally believed to be the aircraft that were sent after the bombers. But when I interviewed a, a fighter controller, he said, well, you know, there was a bit of a problem with it. He said that that wasn't always possible because f- certainly from the radar traces, you couldn't tell whether it was a large formation of fighters coming over on a sweep or whether it was bombers. So actually sending hurricanes after the bombers and spitfires after the fighters was not always possible. So that that's a bit of a myth. And then for the 30 days of September, or throughout the Battle of Britain, I flew 141 times against the enemy, sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times a day, sometimes four times a day, even five times a day, starting at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, dawn, half an hour before dawn, going on until 11 o'clock at night. There were no union hours in the Orient Fighter Command. And we lost a lot of people. Sometimes we were down to three or four aircraft to the end of the day. And we'd be replaced with aircraft by lunchtime the following day. It was a moving picture. And you were so busy with the events at hand. You were too busy to be frightened or upset. You just got on with the job. And you were apprehensive, of course, but particularly when you heard information coming over the telephone 
because of the radar showings on the radar screen. 50, 50 the enemy building up over, over Calais, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. And you knew they're all heading for you. Frightening. And how many, how many, what about exhaustion? How many times a day might these, because I met Tom Neal said sometimes you might do five sorties a day and they must have just been absolutely, the pilots themselves, where, where, what, what was the biggest, what was the biggest threat? Was it lack of aircraft? Was it the pilots getting knackered? Was it, was it the, you know, the, perhaps the, you know, the airfields themselves getting the attritional action on the airfields? Like what was the biggest sort of choke point? There wasn't any shortage of aircraft really. There, there, there was plenty of aircraft. There were, the, the supply of pilots coming through the chain that was a bit of a problem, and that was why a number of pilots came in from other commands, like Bomber Command or even from the Fleet Air Arm, were posted in. So um, the, the attrition rate amongst um, pilots and those that were injured or those who were were physically exhausted, as you say, some pilots you know might have flown four or five times a day. There's one particular, uh, well, two brothers actually who I've been researching recently who were flying Hurricanes with Treble One Squadron in. Uh, in 1940, flying from Croydon, um, the Fisher brothers. And so there was Anthony and Basil Fisher. And they were flying together on the same squadron. And it was a bit like how they ended up on the same squadron, I'm not really sure. But, you know, it was perhaps as unwise as, for example, the, the Pals battalions in the First World War. Because these two brothers were flying side by side, and poor Basil gets shot down. His brother sees him shot down sees his brother bail out and actually sees his brother's parachute catch fire and watches him fall to his death. And in the squadron diary that evening, it actually says pilot officer, uh, flying officer, Anthony Fisher has been sent away on sick leave with a nervous breakdown. Well, you know, hardly surprising, really. So there was a lot of nervous exhaustion, physical exhaustion, just the anxiety of waiting for that telephone to ring to to go off on another scramble. It, it was, you know, it, it it was pretty hellish. And did did Hitler help to save the RAF by in August, well, late August, early September, changing the focus of the German attacks from the infrastructure of the RAF to the the capital city, London. Definitely. I mean, that was a, a huge mistake. I mean, you know, going back to, to the point I was making just now about the radar stations, again, had they relentlessly, relentlessly attacked the airfields, then that would have, again, been a game changer. Um, as it was, a lot of the German intelligence was faulty, and, and they ended up attacking a lot of airfields in the southeast that weren't really critical RAF fighter command airfields. And they attacked a, a fleet air arm station at Ford, they even bombed Lim Airport to, to oblivion with Stukas, and there was nothing there. You know, I mean, it was, it was occasionally used as a sort of forward um, landing strip, but actually um, it was a, a big wasted effort. But had, certainly had the, the Luftwaffe really, really focused on going for the airfields, then that would, have, that would have absolutely changed the game completely. Attacking London on the, the, the 7th of September was for the Luftwaffe, uh, or for the Germans, was a, was a big mistake. And suddenly I looked over the side of my aircraft and they were all, we were all over North Wheel. And the airfield had disappeared completely and utterly. The enormous clouds of black and brown smoke. They bombed about 34, 300 bombs on the airfield. Our airfield had disappeared. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, the silly blighters, they bombed our airfield. How are we going to land now? 
And I don't remember what happened then. The bombers turned away, but were engaged by other chaps in the squadron who had taken off separately with us. And we went down. How, what to do? Well, there's nothing in King's regulations that tells you what to do when your airfield has just been bombed and written out completely. And we landed, weaving between the bomb holes like dirt track riders, hoping we'd not fall into the holes. And there were 300 or so holes on the airfield. But we took it all on our stride. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's also tripped by because by attacking London, it removed the ambiguity, and the, the, command, the fighter commands, commanding officers could could you knew where the Germans were going to go. They were going to yeah. drive straight up Thames Estuary, so it was easier to attack them on the way there and back. That's absolutely right. Yeah, um, although they couldn't be complacent because, of course, they didn't know what the Germans were going to do next, and and there, there was 
certainly there was there was a degree of certainty, but the Germans were still occasionally carrying out random attacks here, there, and everywhere. And it wasn't just London, and they did occasionally still go for airfields, and uh, but very often singly um, or with two or three aircraft bomber aircraft at, at low level. So it wasn't entirely focused on London, but largely so. How close did the Germans come to invading Britain in the summer of 1940? I mean, that's a big question. I I think um, logistically uh, they would have really struggled. I mean, you know, if if you look at the logistics involved in D-Day, you know, I think the Germans would have struggled and most likely come a cropper. Despite the fact that we got depleted defences, you know, depleted army, they've still got to get across that channel. The Royal Navy was still pretty strong, well, very much so, um, and could have caused havoc. Uh, certainly the Stukas might have picked off some of their capital ships, but it wouldn't have been uh, a picnic. It wouldn't have been a walkover. Uh, yeah, you know, the whole thing about, you know, uh, being unprepared and on our own effectively. Uh, but I, I think actually... Really, the German army, German forces would have absolutely struggled to to maintain to, to invade Britain and neutralise it, and actually keep a supply chain going. Okay, they could have commandeered and acquired um, stores and equipment in in the bits of the UK or Britain that they'd um, conquered. But I, I think I, I, th- I think they really would have struggled. I don't think I don't think they personally. I don't think they would have uh, pulled it off. Do you think they were even realistically planning for it? Well, that's that's a big question, and I know historians have been arguing about that. Certainly, there were there were at least nominal preparations with barges and goodness knows what else being assembled on the the Channel coast. But realistically, uh, and in fact, I I spoke um, some years ago now to the um, to the son of a senior German officer who was involved in planning. Operation Sea Lion, which was going to be the invasion of Britain. And, and he said, you know, all the senior officers that were involved were basically saying, you know, what the hell are we doing here? This isn't this is not going to work. So there was there was anxiety at that sort of level. And he was a general. So, you know, he, he was in a position to know and he feared that the planned invasion would be a failure. In that case, how should we think about the Battle of Britain? What, what did, how did it matter? Well, uh, I mean, at, at the time, there was certainly a real fear that the Germans were, were going to invade. Um, and obviously, you know, the RAF, RAF Fighter Command had to, to counter the, the German attacks anyway. And certainly, if the Germans had wished to carry out an invasion or to attempt an invasion, then gaining air superiority was the, was the key. So they had to do that, and they didn't achieve air superiority. Equally, the RAF didn't achieve a complete victory either. It was kind of a bit of a stalemate you know but the the RF victory in the Battle of Britain was certainly important on lots of levels I mean it was also important I suppose on a morale level Um, although whether people in Britain at the time you know actually knew that the Battle of Britain was over and that we'd effectively won it I don't know I mean clearly no invasion happened Um, but that perhaps was the only signal only indicator to the ordinary person in Britain that, that there had been some measure of success but I think it's important to, um, you know, to, to recognise, um, as we do, uh, the, the valour and the importance of, of RAF Fighter Command in, in those summer months in 1940. You know, whatever the period of the Battle of Britain was, you know, it's all a bit grey, you know, a bit blurred around the edges. But it, it was certainly a very, very important campaign. Given that it wasn't, as you say, not a sort of clear-cut victory, and I mean, it, the Germans failed in their attempt to to 
either knock Britain out of the war through the use of bombing or achieve air superiority. So they, so they, Britain remained in the war in control of its own airspace. So in that respect, it is, it was, an, it was a sort of Hitler's first big setback. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. It absolutely was. Absolutely no question. And it certainly must have made German high command think and it made them realise that actually, you know, what they were taking on here with, with Britain was, uh, was, was not going to be a walkover as it had been with, uh, with France or, you know, some of the other countries. Although, you know, to be, to be fair, the, the, the other countries, France and what have you, although they were overwhelmed, and, and certainly in the, in the run-up to the Battle of Britain and then the air, camp, the air war up to Dunkirk, the French Air Force despite the fact that they didn't have a proper command and control system. I mean, they performed magnificently and, and actually, you know, secured a huge amount of success, despite the fact they were just patrolling up and down trying to find the Germans. But yes, for, for, for the Germans, it, it was certainly uh, a salutary experience, I think. Up until that point, they'd very much had things their own way. And then suddenly, you know, <laughs> they come across this obstacle. Well, the English Channel obviously was a big obstacle, but but the... Um, the success and the prowess, if you like, of the RAF during that summer was, was something that absolutely made the, the Germans think. And if you look at the uh, the memoirs of people or notes of people like um, Field Marshal Kesselring, you know, they, they were... It was a German, um, basically air marshal, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they were astounded at the, uh, the, the, the success of the, of the RAF encountering them. And then rather than... Rather than have a Battle of Britain Mark II the following year, they decided to invade the Soviet Union instead. But I mean, the RF was the RF prepared for another, another a spring, another attempt by the Germans to win control of the skies of southern England. Uh, there was certainly um, a belief that it might all sort of kick off again initially, but then, of course, British intelligence saw the, the Luftwaffe being gradually withdrawn from from northern France and from Belgium and what have you, and directed eastwards with the Germans just leaving effectively a defensive force in place, although there were still raids taking place against Britain. It, it was very much low-key. And then, of course, there was almost a Battle of Britain in reverse in 1941 because um, RAF Fighter Command went onto the, onto the offensive, effectively, escorting sort of penny packets, if you like, of, of British bombers by daylight to attack targets in northern France, the idea being to, to draw the... Um, the, the the German fighters that were defending that part of the, the French coast up into action. And also there was a, a, a feeling that by doing that, it tied up German forces on, on the French coast, which might otherwise have been directed to, to Russia into the east. I'm not entirely sure about that because there were only two or three German fighter units left on the French coast. Uh, and the, the Germans, in any case, would not have left that coastline undefended. So... I, I'm not sure that it actually tied them up to the extent that they otherwise would have been sent to Russia. But certainly it, it was interesting that there was this, as I say, a Battle of Britain almost in reverse. They were flying what were called circus operations, rodeos, roadsteads, all sorts of weird code names. The effectiveness of, of that is somewhat questionable. And in fact, you know, the the numbers of RAF fighter pilots who were being lost in the summer of 1941 in this reverse Battle of Britain was horrendous. I mean, we were losing pilots on a daily basis. And, and, a, and it was different in that a British pilot who's shot down over Britain, who is unwounded, he's, you know, he, he's going to fight another day. But of course, he might come down on his parachute or crash land in France. He's now a prisoner, you know, so he's effectively he might as well be dead as far as fighter commander concerned. 
So really why uh, what you might call the Battle of Britain Mark II or Battle of Britain in reverse was, was fought is I, th I think it was perhaps unwise of the RAF to have carried out the, the operations that they did over France at that time. And I remember being on television with David Jason, you know, and he said, uh, where did you sleep? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we just slept in our clothes. We ate in our clothes between flights. And I've trained myself, I said, to uh, sleep at every convenient time of the day. And I grabbed him by the lapels and said, is there just a possible chance? I'm not off as I'm talking to you, you see. Which raised a bit of a laugh. But that's it. We just slept between flights in our clothes. Sometimes we didn't even take our clothes off at night. Sometimes we flew in our pajamas. We did everything that was necessary at the time. Andy, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What's your what's your latest? But you've always got some exciting projects on the go. Just quickly, tell us what you've got going on. I'm about to take on the editor, editorship of a, a brand new magazine, which is a German military history magazine. Um, I'm running that with um, someone that you know well, I think, Rob Schaefer, a German military historian. Uh, the title will be called Iron Cross, but it's just having an objective look at German military history, very often through the eyes of the Germans themselves. Thanks very much. Good luck with it all. Thank you, Dan. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.